Thanks, Esther. And uh, good evening for those of you who are visiting. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to have you with us. As Alana said, we are beginning a series that's looking at some of the key themes of uh, uh, Christianity. And in particular, we're focusing on the account of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection that's found in, in what's called the Gospel of Mark. Uh, the uh, gospel is its own kind of type of literature, really. And if you go into a bookstore and you look for, you know, the science fiction section or uh, biographies or, you know, textbooks, essentially a gospel is a combination of biography, history, and textbook. Uh, that what Mark is trying to account, recount to us is not only some stuff about Jesus' life, not only some historical bits and pieces, but also trying to teach us a little bit about who Jesus is. So over the next seven weeks, we're going to be kind of getting stuck into Mark's gospel, uh, and I'll have a bit more to say about that a little bit later on. Uh, have any of you ever played the game Headbands? You know, you got the, the thing on your forehead, and uh, everyone else can see who you are except you, and then you ask questions. Everyone feeling like a bit of an idiot because everyone's got something stuck to their forehead they can't see. And I'd say things like, so am I an animal? And you'd say yes. And I'd say, am I famous? And you'd say, yes. I'd say, am I dead? You'd say, yes. I, I might say, am I Cecil the lion? And you'd say, yes. Right? <laughs> Is that too soon? Right? <laughs> uh, or have you played the game Guess Who? You know, the same kind of deal. Two players, and there's all the little characters that you have flipped up. And you choose one, and I choose one, and then we kind of ask each other questions, you know. Is the, is, did, uh, did you pick someone who's a man? Yes, I knocked down all the, all the women on my playing board. Uh, is uh, the person red-haired? Yes. So I knocked down all the blondes and the brunettes and whatnot. Do I have glasses? Yes. And I knocked everyone down. And I deduce, through asking these questions, requiring a yes or no answer, which character you've selected, and I try to do that before you have. You've all played those sorts of games? kind of the deduction guessing games about identity. Who am I or who, who's on my forehead at the very least? These are the things. Now, basically one of the driving tensions in the narrative of Mark is the question of who is Jesus. But instead of, you know, the headbands game or guess who or those sorts of deals where I don't necessarily know, Mark has told us who he believes Jesus is right at the very outset. If you have your Bibles with you and want to look in Mark chapter 1, the very beginning, this is his kind of his title summary statement. He says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. Your version of the Bible might say Jesus the Christ or Jesus Christ. And Christ is not a surname. It's not like Jesus' last name was Christ and his mother and father were Mr. and Mrs. Christ. Uh, Christ is a title. Uh, and it's the Greek term uh, that's translated from the Hebrew Messiah. They both mean the same thing. Uh, and to, for, for Mark to say that he believed Jesus is the Messiah was to be saying something pretty significant about who Jesus was. The idea of a Messiah, the concept of a Messiah, uh, was one that by this point in time, particularly for Jewish people, was an enormous, enormous, uh, of, of enormous significance. The Messiah, or the Christ, was the one who would come, the anointed one of God, who would establish God's own kingdom. Uh, it, it wasn't going to be a democracy. It wasn't going to be another dictatorship. It wasn't going to be a flawed monarchy. It was going to be God's own rule. Under his rule, there would be universal justice. There would be universal peace. There would be universal blessings all over the world because of the Messiah. And so Mark tells us right away who Jesus is. 
and then frames Jesus in a very particular way. He shows that Jesus is the fulfillment of ancient and venerable prophecies. He is this destined one. Uh, Beyond that, uh, he has his own kind of opening act. John the Baptist is sent by God essentially to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. That's his only task. And John's a pretty big deal. People come from all over to hear him. There's this revival of piety and devotion as people prepare themselves for the coming of God's own anointed one. When Jesus does appear, he's baptized to mark the beginning of his ministry. And there are signs that suggest that God is about to break into history. The heavens are torn open. The Holy Spirit is poured out on him. A voice speaks from heaven. It's all happening. And then we end up really disappointed with this Jesus fellow. Because he does a whole bunch of stuff that we didn't actually expect. He calls a bunch of fishermen as his disciples. He starts his ministry in Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was a cultural and religious backwater. If you were a religious leader, if you were trying to tell everyone that you were the Messiah, you didn't start in Capernaum. Uh, You started in Jerusalem. But no, he doesn't. And he doesn't particularly show any interest in gaining power. He doesn't show any particular interest in starting to kick the Romans out. It's just really odd. And that's followed in Mark's account with a series of misunderstandings. And at the very heart of all of the misunderstandings about Jesus are his 12 disciples. Twelve men handpicked by Jesus to be with him and to follow him. And all the way through, the disciples, well, not all the way through, but most of the way through, they have no idea what's going on. And that is really highlighted in this passage that Esther read for us in chapter 6. Now, Jesus has already done some fairly remarkable things. This is the second miracle that takes place on the Sea of Galilee. The first was in chapter 4. In that little story, there's a storm that, that comes up. The boat's about to be swamped. Jesus is sleeping. The disciples wake him up and say, don't you care that we're about to drown? Jesus stands up, rebukes the wind and the waves, and it immediately becomes calm. And the disciples say to themselves, who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Now, if you can imagine, I'm playing guess who as I read the Gospel of Mark. And I've got all my characters, all the religious leaders and great philosophers and thinkers all lined up. And the first question you ask is, does your character uh, have the wind and the waves obey him? How many names am I knocking down? How many people can go down to the ocean and say, that's enough. Settle down. Anyone? Like, that's a pretty limited number of people, isn't it? It's probably not Marx or Freud or, 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 or Aristotle or Plato or anyone kind of present. There's only a limited number of people who are going to be able to do that sort of thing. The disciples sit there and go, who is this? They can't figure it out. It beats me. And then Jesus goes on to do some even more remarkable things. He casts out an army of demons from a demon-possessed man. A, a woman who's been uh, ill for 12 years touches the edge of his cloak and is healed. He raises a young girl from the dead. And then he feeds 5,000 men plus women plus children with only five loaves and two fish. And it's that story that precedes this. It's the immediately after that that Jesus gets them into the boat and sends them across to the other side while he goes up on the mountain to pray. And here we have this second miracle on the Sea of Galilee. 
So it begins, really, in this verse, uh, when Jesus, in verse 48, shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. you got to love the Bible, don't you? It just said something utterly remarkable, didn't it? And we just read it like, oh, it's the Bible, so you expect weird stuff like that. He went out to them, walking on the lake. Does that strike anyone else as odd? I mean, that's just extraordinary, isn't it? Who walks on water, like on a lake? I'm not talking about some sort of wonderful CGI effect in a swimming pool. I'm talking about a lake. He's coming to them on the lake. Anyone? Anyone? Job chapter 9, verse 8 gives us one clue. Right? It tells us that the Lord, God, He is the one who treads the waters of the deep. So when, when Mark tells us that Jesus is walking to them on the lake, it's a little clue from the Old Testament that Jesus is probably not just some guy. And it gets better. Did you notice what, he said, what Mark says next? It says this, he was about to pass by them. Did anyone else find that weird? He sees them on the lake and he walks out to them and then it says he's about to pass by them. Strange, isn't it? It's almost as if Jesus kind of forgot what he was doing. He was just walking on the lake and kind of forgot and just was about to go past them. Or they were going too slowly and he was about to overtake. That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? It's just a really weird statement. He was about to pass them by as if it didn't really matter too much what was taking place in the boat. But in actual fact, again, Mark is trying to give us a clue to who Jesus is. The language that he uses is passing by them. is not the language of overtaking or walking by them or alongside them. It's actually language that's used in a couple of places in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 33, if you care to look it up at some other time, the great prophet Moses who led the people out of Egypt, if you've seen the Prince of Egypt or seen the Ten Commandments with was it Charlton Heston or whatever it was, uh, you, the great leader of the people of Israel. He was the father of the nation in lots of ways. He speaks to the Lord and he says to the Lord, will you show me your glory? And the Lord says, yes, I will. I will cause my glory to pass by you. And when that time comes, I will press you into the cleft of the rock and my glory will pass by you. This is the language that he uses. In 1 Kings chapter 19, the great prophet Elijah, sent by the Lord to confront the people with their apostasy, is so depressed and so discouraged at all that's taken place in his service for the Lord that he has run to the mountain of God and has kind of hidden in a cave. And the Lord comes to him and says, come out of the cave and stand on the mountain, for the Lord is about to pass by you. So what Mark is pointing to here is actually, he's using the language of theophany. It's the appearance of God. This is not just Jesus trying to catch up and thinking to himself, well, it'll be a shortcut if I go across the lake, so I'll just do that. This is Jesus showing them who he is. It's remarkable, utterly remarkable. And the disciples' response? They thought he was a ghost. God has appeared. They think he's a dead guy. It's a bit of a misunderstanding, wouldn't you say? And it's the last in a long, long line of misunderstandings. 
Uh, all the way through the gospel, everyone has misunderstood Jesus. If he is the Messiah, he is not having a great kind of run with people. And the crowds, they listen to him teach, and they say, wow, that is just amazing teaching. I've never heard anyone explain scriptures like that. What authority, what power. But they're only amazed at him. They don't kind of go on and say he must be someone greater than just a teacher. He heals people, and they're amazed. As, as Esther read, they ran ahead of him and grabbed all the sick people and just lay them in the marketplace. So you went to buy your tomatoes, and you were stepping over paralyzed people and dodging deaf people and whatnot as Jesus passed by. And they're saying, could you just let them touch your cloak as they walk past? And they were all healed. It's amazing. But for Jesus, he was more than a teacher, more than a miracle worker. They were always meant, his teachings and the miracles, to point to who he was. To point to who he was as the Messiah, as the Christ. And then it gets a little bit more comical. The religious leaders don't like Jesus much at all. They think he's a little bit unorthodox. He hangs out with the wrong sorts of people. Uh, He plays fast and loose with some of their regulations around the Sabbath. Uh, He makes somewhat blasphemous claims like, I can forgive your sins. That's kind of a little bit out there. Uh, he does all sorts of stuff that they don't quite understand. By chapter three, sorry, by chapter four, they've actually already decided that Jesus is probably demon-possessed, which you'd have to say is a misunderstanding of who Jesus is, you'd, th- you'd think. His family think he's gone insane. They come to take him home and kind of put him in a nice soft room where he can be quiet. Herod Antipas, who had John the Baptist executed, reckons that Jesus is just John resurrected and kind of running around, kind of showing off all the great stuff that he can do because he's come back from the dead. The disciples have just witnessed a theophany, and they don't understand. Jesus' response, pretty typical when God shows up, isn't it? Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. God doesn't need us to be afraid. He doesn't need us to be freaked out uh, when he shows up. And so nearly every single occurrence of God appearing or an angel coming is followed up by, don't be afraid. If you're ever wondering if that weird angelic being at the end of your bed is good or bad, if they say don't be afraid, you're probably okay. Because this is what God does. Don't be afraid. And there's another little allusion here as well. Because in the Old Testament, the name of God, his personal name, was translated in the Old Testament in English is Lord. But it's the Hebrew word Yahweh. And it's a word that is essentially one that means I am. And Jesus says, take courage, it is I. After he was about to pass by them, treading on the waves of the deep. And as soon as he gets in the boat, the wind dies down. This would be another clue How many people does that happen for? Well, Psalm 104, Psalm 148, Ecclesiastes 8, Job chapter 9, all talk about the fact that it was God who established the force of the wind, that it was God who rides the wind or uses it as his messengers, who controls the wind. Well, here is another example. And the disciples, we're told, were only completely amazed. That's all they could muster. Now, by this point in time, can I just point out, we often read the Bible like it's a really somber 
and holy book. Now it is a holy book, but we read it and we don't appreciate the narrative tension. If you are following along in the story, by this point in time you should be yelling at the disciples. You should read chapter 6 and see that they are just merely amazed and go, Oh, police! Come on, guys. He's walking on the water. He just raised someone from the dead. He fed five. That's how you should read the Bible. But we read it like this. They were completely amazed. Ah, yes. Of course they were. This is a story. And the tension is building. We ought to be just kind of going, what is it going to take? What is it going to take for these guys to figure out who Jesus is? And of course, we probably see ourselves in this passage, perhaps a little bit. Because of what follows, I don't know if you noticed it. It says that they were completely amazed, and then it gives us a reason why they were completely amazed. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Did you ever read that before? They were amazed, not because he walked on water or that the wind died down. They were amazed because they hadn't understood the bread thing. And when I first read that, I went, I don't understand the bread thing. What do loaves have to do with this? What, is, what did the loaves have to do with anything apart from it was the last thing Jesus did before he sent them out? What's to understand? And I thought to myself, that doesn't sound good, because if I don't understand the lobes, apparently I'm missing something fairly critical here. Now, the lobes, the story of the lobes, the feeding of the 5,000, is a really important story for the early Christians. Uh, this is a, a mosaic that was found, I think it's first or second century, it's very, very old, which picks up the symbolism of the bread and the fishes. It's the one of the miracles, rather, that is told in all four gospel accounts. Uh, the gospels tell all sorts of different stories, but this is one that all four of the gospel writers thought we need to include this one. The story of the feeding of the 5,000. It's, 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 it's absolutely critical. Now the question is, why is it so critical? And again, you know, there might be some kind of uh, allusion to Moses. Moses, that great leader of Israel who I've already mentioned, who, while he led the people in the wilderness for 40 years, the people received bread from heaven. Every morning they would go out, and with the dew, this bread would fall. It was called manna. And they would pick it up and they would eat. It was the provision of God, this miraculous provision of God. And that might be part of it. But I think something else is going on. Because Jesus, when he feeds the 5,000, there's a few remarkable things in it. One of the really remarkable things is he feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. I mean, that wouldn't feed the five, really, let alone the 5,000. But Jesus, we're told, takes the bread and the fish, he gives thanks, he broke it, and gave it to his disciples. Does that sound familiar to those of you who have perhaps been around a bit? Same kind of language that's used around the Lord's Supper. That Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to his disciples. There's some sort of connection between what Jesus does with these loaves and fish and what he ends up doing later in the book. 
It has to do ultimately, though, with provision, doesn't it? There are 5,000 men, a crowd of them, with, with women and children as well. Who knows how many there were? And they are without food. They're going to be exhausted before they get home. And Jesus provides for them. But Jesus is not in the habit of providing a meal or even a kind of a daily bread necessarily. There's something else going on here that points to the provision that Jesus came to give, which is a provision of our deepest, deepest needs. He came to provide what only God can provide, which is, I think, the connection here. I also think it's fascinating that Jesus over-catered in the feeding of the 5,000. They ended up with more than they started with. I think that's amazing. If Jesus is the Son of God, as as Mark suggests, then surely he could have catered exactly. No waste, no leftovers, but Jesus over caters. Has everyone had enough? Is everyone full? There's still leftovers. I think that says something remarkable about his provision as well. They had not understood about the loaves. They had not understood what Jesus was on about. They hadn't understood what he had come to do. They hadn't understood who he was. And then it says their hearts were hardened. And this is a biblical language to talk about unresponsiveness. Um, Have you ever accidentally swiped a screen that's not a smart screen? We just assume everything is these days, and so you see a screen, you kind of swipe it, and nothing happens. You're like, what? The non-responsive, like if you do that to your television set, right? That's hard-heartedness. Jesus has been swiping the disciples, if I can push the analogy to breaking point. He heals somebody, nothing. He uh, heals somebody else, nothing. He miraculously feeds people, nothing. He calms a storm. He's just kind of swiping away, double swiping, using the four fingers thing. The whole thing, trying to get something out of this non-responsive screen. The disciples are hard-hearted, unresponsive to what Jesus is on about. It doesn't seem to matter what he does, they just don't get it. And this is where I find some great encouragement. Because notice what Jesus does. He climbed into the boat with them. The wind died down. They're amazed. They hadn't understood. Their hearts were hardened. And they crossed over. Jesus is content to be with them in the boat. We might be pulling our hair out by chapter 6 going, come on guys, you can do it. But Jesus isn't. Jesus doesn't get in the boat and say, well, uh huh, (laughs) walking on the water thing, anyone? Peter? John? No? Okay. Judas? How about, no. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't berate them. He doesn't say, oh, gentlemen, okay, stop rowing. (laughs) Get out your Bibles. We're going to have a Bible study here and now. Let me turn you to Exodus 33 for a moment and show you a few things. He doesn't get back out of the boat and stride away off the lake going, I'm going to get some other disciples, right? Jesus is content. Even though he has come to them kind of as this appearance of God, even though he has just displayed his ability to provide beyond all that they will need, and they have not gotten any of it, he is content to be in the boat with them. 
content to wait. I don't know if you've uh, read or seen the, uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, if you have, particularly in the books where this is a stronger sort of theme than uh, Peter Jackson portrayed, you might remember the character of Aragorn. He's the rightful king of Gondor. Uh, he is the rightful king, and they haven't had a, a king on the throne for generations. The time has not yet come for Aragorn to take his throne, and when he is introduced to us in the story, he is not introduced as His Majesty King of Gondor, Lord Aragorn. He is introduced to us as he helps Frodo and his companions get to the safe haven of Rivendell as Strider the Ranger. This weather-stained, hard, rough-around-the-edges man who they have to learn to trust. But he never tells them who he is. And it's only much, much later in the story that we find out. But he is content to be with them. And Jesus here is content to wait. And I think one of the reasons is that their hard-heartedness is not permanent. That's encouraging, isn't it? That there there can be some change. That, That these men who simply don't get it, who can't seem to kind of put the pieces together, the state of their heart is not permanent. The time will come, perhaps, when some nearly all, actually find that they understand who Jesus is. And this, of course, will bring a remarkable change to their lives. We believe that Jesus is alive. If you're playing guess who still, that also kind of singles him out. There are lots of great philosophers, lots of great thinkers, lots of great religious leaders, but very few of them are still alive 2,000 years after they walked the earth. We believe Jesus is alive and therefore he is still able and willing to show you who he is. I sometimes wonder if there's actually another sort of parallel between us and the disciples beyond not comprehending the loaves thing. In the story, it says that they were straining at the oars. I don't know what you think about uh, meeting God. But if I said you were going to have a divine encounter, what would you want to do to prepare for that? Well, you'd probably want to find some quiet space. A pad of paper, in case he says something important. He probably will. Two pens then, right? Uh, Maybe your phone to record the event. And then you'd want to... Hmm. prepare yourself. Maybe listen to some worship music or something, right? Uh, Listen to another sermon or something. Just kind of get in the mood, right? But how much time do we actually have like that in our lives? Most of the time, aren't we doing what the disciples are doing? Straining against the oars, pulling into the wind, thinking that this journey, which should not have taken all night, has taken all night, and we're seemingly nowhere in terms of getting to the shore. Straining at the oars. Jesus doesn't wait until they are in a spiritually receptive mood. He doesn't wait until they've all sat down on the hillside, had something to eat, so they're no longer hangry. And they sit down and they just kind of go, ah, I'm ready for a revelation of God. No. No. Jesus appears to them while they are straining at the oars. 
Which means that no matter where you find yourself in your life, Jesus is willing to show you who he is. And he will patiently wait for you to understand. For some of you, you know, you've heard this stuff your whole life. How many Sundays have you lived in your life? That's how many times you've heard this kind of thing. For some of you, your hearts actually might be unresponsive to that. You might never have really gotten it. It might never have made any sense to you. Well, Jesus is still waiting patiently for you to understand. For some of you, this might be a relatively recent journey. You've only just kind of started. You've only, this is your second Sunday, your first Sunday. You've only been doing it for a little while, trying to grapple with who Jesus is. And you're starting to get it, but you're not entirely sure. Well, Jesus will wait patiently. And so what I would like to suggest to all of us, regardless of whether you've heard this a million times or not, is that you actually decide to read the Gospel of Mark and pray for insight. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus to be able to pray. Prayer is simply talking to God, and it can be as simple as this. Jesus, I'm reading this gospel. Show me who you are. Amen. That will be sufficiently spiritual and pious to count. If you don't have your own Bible, as Alana said, we've got some kind of whole Bibles that you want to grab. Or if you just want to grab one of these little gospel of Marks. We've got a half a dozen or so up there. We've got plenty more as well. So if you want to grab one of these, can I encourage you to read it through? Uh, read it through again. There's a little reading plan in here that will take you through it in three weeks. It's not that long, as you can probably see. So you can probably read it in an afternoon if you wanted to. But read the gospel again. And can I encourage you to enjoy the story? Don't read it like the Bible. Read it like the story it is. Get frustrated with the disciples. Yell at the pages. Be amazed when they finally figure him out. And be crushed when it shows that they actually didn't really understand him in the first place. Cry with Jesus as they all desert him. Listen again to his own prayers, his own teachings. Pay attention. Enjoy the story. And in the midst of it, see if you can't understand a little bit more about who Jesus is. Because when we understand who Jesus is, then his mission begins to make some sense. If we don't understand who Jesus is, then why he came won't make any sense at all, and his call for us to follow him will make even less. So let us begin, or return, to trying to understand who Jesus is. And in one of the simplest ways, to read through the Gospel of Mark again. Paying attention, perhaps, for the first time. So that's my challenge to you. That we might, every one of us, appreciate more deeply and profoundly who Jesus is. That we might more deeply and profoundly understand his mission. And more deeply and profoundly understand the call that he has placed in our lives to follow him. I'm going to take a moment to pray for us in this endeavor. As Dave and the team come, we're going to sing a couple of songs. The Lamb of God being one of them. That imagery that's taken from the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation in particular, describing Jesus as, as kind of our perfect sacrifice. We'll be exploring that language in the weeks to come. Uh, but let me take a moment as the band come up uh, to lead you in prayer. Will you join me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are alive. 
We thank you that you are still willing to show us who you are. And we ask that as we take up the Gospel of Mark this week, perhaps read a few chapters of it or perhaps read the whole thing, that you would indeed give us insight into who you are. Pray that we might be able to engage with the story, that we might see you with fresh eyes. And then as we understand more about who you are, that we might understand both your mission and your call. And we ask these things not because we are bright or particularly clever or particularly righteous or good, but we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.